Our scripture today will be Isaiah 4, verses 2 through 6. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy, everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem in the midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning, then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. Thank you, Katie, for reading. If you could keep your Bibles open, let's, let's pray, okay? Father, when you speak, we know we should listen. And there may be a thousand things that would pull our attention and pull our mind away from you. So we ask you to help us to focus on your word and on your son. And we pray this so that our lives might bring you the glory and the honor you deserve. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, maybe you've done this. Maybe you have watched, like I have, a time-lapse video of an artist that is sketching a portrait of something or a portrait of a person. Generally, that starts by sketching a basic outline. And then, and then you begin to fill in. And maybe you're, maybe you're painting or maybe you're drawing. But you begin to fill in and shade certain areas. And then you go to another place and you, maybe in the time-lapse video, you watch as the artist sketches over there and then they come back to the same place they were working on. Maybe they add some touches there and uh, another shade there. And then maybe they go to another place. And, and eventually, eventually what happens is the different colors and shades are added. Eventually, some sort of silhouette emerges. And the silhouette has these shapes and contours. And eventually you begin to know more clearly, oh, this is the person that they were drawing all along. The outline makes sense. It all, it all comes together. I think of that, especially as I read the book of Isaiah. So the book of Isaiah begins to shape and outline some things that aren't the easiest to understand immediately. It, it takes some work. The, the shapes that Isaiah is drawing, it's the shape of a nation, a people, in a particular situation. These are God's people. And the message of Isaiah, the messages that he gives are recorded and there is repetition. So if you were to go from Isaiah 1 to Isaiah 66, you would read some things and go, I think I've heard that before. But often it comes at a little bit different angle, a little bit different approach, a little bit different pattern. Isaiah is admittedly not, not an easy book to read through. And even the passages that you read, sometimes they're, it's not easy to understand everything that's going on there. There are symbols, like even last week we talked about a symbol of a, a river, a stream flowing. And we, we also talked about a mountain that towers above. Isaiah will use these symbols. He's sketching out a story of a people who are in trouble. 
And I, I just want us to know exactly what we're diving into. It's a story of people who are in trouble. Things are not okay. Things are not okay socially. And one way you know things are not okay socially in their land is that, is that the most vulnerable are not being protected and taken care of, not being watched over. The poor are being taken, taken advantage of. There's, there's no care for those people. The, the poor are being crushed. The oppression is rampant. Socially, things are not okay. Spiritually, things are not okay. And we know that because the, the people in Isaiah's time had heard from God, but they had rebelled against him. They decided their way was better than anything God could come up with for them. They wanted to go their own path, make their own decisions. So they were making their own decisions as they went, and they were kind of flaunting their rebellion against the authority that God had over them. They had turned to other things for strength and for help, like, like idols, of which Isaiah calls them like non-gods. These, aren't even, these don't even compete with the one true God. Things are not okay, and God was sending prophets like Isaiah to get their attention to say, hey, everything's not okay. And they come with a message, and sometimes that message is pretty straightforward. Other times there's symbols and images that you have to process, but they're telling them things are not okay in your land. Isaiah seems to alternate, and I think we've got to realize this, especially as we go through these first few chapters of Isaiah. It alternates between Isaiah calling the people of Israel out, giving them warnings, telling them how they aren't living right and how they're not loving God, they're not loving their neighbor. But it alternates the next chapter, sometimes even in the same chapter, there will be promises, there will be hope. So it's like bad news and then good news. And then the next chapter, you're back to more bad news. And then there's some good news. And it seems like this is the way Isaiah weaves his messages. Good news and bad news, warnings and promises. What I found, though, is I've read the book of Isaiah as I've studied, as I've prepared. There's parts of it that seem like, man, that's hard to understand exactly what was going on there. But actually, as we go deeper, we kind of trace out the silhouette, the portrait that Isaiah is giving us. It almost is like holding up a mirror to our own lives. It can be. Because we begin to see ourselves in some of what's going on in Isaiah. And that's what I hope we find today. So you read a verse like Isaiah 4.2 and you find out like this isn't even so much just about them. It's also about us. Isaiah 4.2, again, I hope you have your Bibles open. It says, in that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious. The fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. What does that mean? In that day, in that day has been setting up some, like in that day previously in Isaiah in chapter 3, in that day is like terrible things are going to happen. But in the midst of that, in the midst of the warnings are promises. In that day, there's going to be this branch and again, so we have to work with the imagery. And I think maybe the best way to understand the branch is almost think of a family tree. Only this is the branch of the Lord. This is God's family tree. And there is this branch of the Lord. And what grows on that branch is beautiful and glorious, even in the midst of everything that's ugly in their society. Good things are going to come from it. Good fruit will come from it. And the survivors will be beautiful. That's what it says. Picture a massive reset in the middle of God's judgment on sin. Something survives and that something is a group of people that are dedicated to the Lord, that, have trust, that are trusting in Him. They're going to survive. 
They're going to be made glorious and beautiful. That's the picture. I think when you read this passage of Isaiah, what you find is you find some characteristics of God's people. And one of those characteristics is that God's people will be called holy. So we imagine now we've got this branch that is thriving and growing. And in verse 3, it says, the one who is left in Zion, because of that branch, he will be called holy. Everyone who's been recorded for life in Jerusalem. So because of the branch, a group of people are going to be called holy. I don't know what you think of when you think of the word holy. I don't know what word associations come to mind. But I think it's very likely for many people that holy almost brings up some negative connotations. If you think of people being holy, people being called holy, it's almost as if, oh yeah, it's holier than thou. Some sort of pious, judgmental, pretentious person that acts all holy, like they're better than everybody else. If that's what your word association is, you have to be very careful when you're reading God's word because actually that's not the definition of the word holy in the Bible. Holy has a meaning of being set apart for God and his purposes. That's what holy means. So if we're thinking like pious and pompous and kind of off-putting because you think you're better than everybody else, actually that's not what's being said. It's that God's people will be called holy, set apart for God and his purposes, for his use. That, that's something specifically intrinsic to God. So we know that God is holy. He is set apart. But then we're told in the Bible there are holy objects and there are holy things. There are like a holy mountain. Again, God sets it apart for his use, for his purposes. The priests wore holy garments. They were set apart for a special use to glorify God. When the priest would offer sacrifices, it was on a holy altar in a holy tabernacle or a holy temple set apart for God and his purposes. And even that holiness extends to people. They're a holy people, a holy nation, a holy community of people set apart for God and his purposes. God's people are called holy. And because God has said you're holy, then that means being included in the record or the book of life, you will be called holy. Maybe you struggle with thinking of yourself as a holy person. There's probably something good in that struggle. There's probably something good about not being complacent and thinking, I'm just fine as I am. It doesn't really matter who I am or how I act. But there's actually something spiritually detrimental if we forget that God has set us apart, made us holy for his purposes. There's something detrimental if we forget that God has called us not for impurity, but in holiness. And maybe it's really, really hard for you to think of yourself as holy. Maybe it's because you know what you've done. Or maybe it's because you know the family secrets. And you're pretty certain that nobody with your DNA, nobody with your family history, nobody with that could ever be holy. Why would God ever choose to use you? Maybe that's what goes through your mind. Could you ever be holy? Maybe you feel so ordinary. Maybe you, you don't feel like you're that spectacular Christian, like you know of holy people who seem to be like really, really spiritual, but here you are in the, in the throes of parenting. Here you are grinding each day out at work. 
You're just trying to show up. You're just living, barely getting done the things you need to get done. Nothing is special. Could God set you apart for his purposes? Maybe as you look at your life, it seems like some of the best years of your life are fading. And you think, well, what am I doing? What reason does God have for me even being here? I wonder how much it must tell us about God's love. That he would set his love on, on us. So much so that he sets us apart for his work for his purposes. In that day, you will be called holy. Before you were formed in the womb, God knew you, and there are ways in which you have been created to give him glory. I know this world tells an alternate story. It's like, you know, you are special and you're, you're unique and everybody should recognize that. And then you should feel so fulfilled in yourself because you are something, you've made a name for yourself. But I think, my goodness, if that's all I have, that I just have declared myself as unique and special, and then I sit on a recliner and think about how special I am, is that enough? That seems kind of hollow to me. But, but what if it's more than that? What if it would last longer, longer than this plaque of recognition or longer than a thousand people liking something I said or something I've done? What if it goes deeper than that? What if I could use, what if you could use every bit of energy and skills and personality that your creator gave you? What if you could use those for his glory, for your good, for the benefit of other people? What if you could love God and love neighbor through everything that he's given you? He sets you apart. He calls you holy because he has divine purposes for you. I would imagine even if you're here, not a follower of Jesus Christ, Maybe you're, you're not sure how all this pieces together, but just listen, if there truly is a God who made everything, including you, and he had a specific purpose that he designed you for, wouldn't you want to be in a relationship with that creator? Wouldn't you want to know his power? Wouldn't you want to know his closeness? Wouldn't you want to know that he's with you to be holy? I mean, some of this like, we're called holy, and yet we also know it's a struggle to be holy. It's a struggle to keep ourselves pure and ready for God's purposes. We know in some ways we hear like loud and clear, you are holy, and then other times we're commanded to be holy, and we hold those things in tension. But we know this, the one who started a good work in us, one day will present us, Colossians 1 says, blameless and holy before God. One day that's going to happen, set apart for his purposes. God's intention has always been to take people like us, sinners like us, and set us apart for his purposes. And all this now is coming through the branch that Isaiah sees, a branch which makes things fruitful, a branch which makes people holy. Another characteristic of God's people in verse 4 emerges in that day. It says, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion. When the Lord will have cleansed the, the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst. So it's when this branch comes, there is a day where we will be called holy, but there's also a day where we will be washed 
when the Lord will cleanse us. It's almost like the picture of you, you getting grease or something uh, in a project around the house. Or maybe you're doing some yard work and you get sap stuck on your hands and you're trying to just get it off. You can't really do much of anything productive or useful until you get cleansed, until you get washed. Actually, what this passage says is not only will God make his people, when the branch comes, not only will God make his people holy, but he will also make them clean. God's people are made clean. Notice it says the Lord does the washing. The Lord does the cleansing. The Lord does the rinsing. The Lord is the one who does this. You can't be clean on your own. He washes away. And it says particularly, he washes away the filth of the daughters of Zion. What does that mean? What's it a reference to? This the daughters of Zion have been talked about a lot in Isaiah chapter 3. And you know what their characteristic sin is? It's not even a sin of sexual immorality. Actually, what has made them filthy and unclean before the Lord is their pride, the way they think they're better than everybody else. And, and the Lord judges, brings judgment upon pride. He, he resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And in the midst of the shame of God judging them for them, their pride, God says, but I will make you clean. I will deal with the shame. You say, I have blood on my hands from my guilt. I will deal with the guilt. Shame and guilt are dealt with and we're made clean. The internal things that tell us, like even as we walk in a room, we know I'm not okay. If they knew what I'd done, if they knew what I'd thought about, how do we deal with that shame that sometimes lasts for decades? We need someone to cleanse us. How do we deal with the objective guilt? It's almost like we're in a courtroom and we hear very clearly, you're guilty as charged. How do we deal with that? We need someone coming outside of us, declaring us not guilty. As I was reading of being clean before the Lord, I thought, man, if there's anything that seems really confusing to me right now out in our culture, it's the culture's inability to understand how to deal with shame and how to deal with guilt. It seems like we, we don't even have categories. We don't even know how to handle. We don't know how to be consistent. We don't know what to do. We know things are wrong. We know that we know that we should feel bad if we do something wrong. We know we should pay for something if we do something wrong. Or do we know that? I think better said we know somebody else should pay for something if they do something wrong. We know they should feel ashamed of themselves if they do something. It's easy for us to shake our heads at yet another revelation of a, a, a mic that was left on and caught someone saying something that is just particularly shameful and we say, nobody should ever hear that again. Nobody should ever hear from them again. They ought to be gone out of our sight. They're a despicable human being. Shame on them and may they, may they never do anything again. May they just rot in hell. I mean, there's some things that bring out that emotion. There's some things that say they're guilty. There should be no leniency. They should be punished. But then at the same moment we say, but shouldn't we give some people a second chance? Don't we love stories of re you know, redemption and atonement, these are words used in sports and celebrities and media. Atonement, comebacks. We don't know exactly what to do with shame and guilt. We don't know what to do. But God tells us exactly what he does. It's like he doesn't even flinch from talking about these subjects 
that there's so much cultural confusion over, no consistency. And God says, you cannot be clean on your own. You can't just say, it doesn't matter. I'm okay. I still try to be a good person. You can't just do that when you've harmed a bunch of other people. You need something from outside of you to clean you up, to declare you not guilty. You need something from beyond you. You can't do it internally. And there are no shortcuts here. There's no free passes. If we have guilt, if we feel shame, we need something outside of us. Lord, take it away. Change me. And God loves us so much in this specific way. He comes to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is the outline painting being painted for us of the branch who comes to make us clean. The branch who comes to give us a gift of love and righteousness. When you read through Isaiah, sometimes it's helpful to know a little bit of the background of Israel's story to, for it all to kind of click and you go, oh, that's what that image means. That's what he's talking about. You don't have to be an expert in ancient Israelite history. But there are some basic things you have to know that are core to Israel's history to understand some of Isaiah. So one of those things is remember that God delivered his people from Egypt. They were slaves for 400 years, remember? And God brings them out of Egypt. Remember that God gave them instruction. We call it the Ten Commands. Said this is the way you're supposed to live. Remember that God gave his people a place, it's called a tent of meeting, a a tabernacle where God would be, his presence would be in the center and all the tribes would be around the tent of meeting where God would be, where relationship with God would be restored and reconciled. And then there's another piece of Israel's history that's helpful to remember. And that is that God would give them festivals and feasts to say, I'm with you. Even if you go through the wilderness, I'm with you. God would guide them. So in Exodus chapter 40, we read verses like this throughout all their journeys. Whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud wasn't taken up, they didn't set out until the day it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journey. So you've got to know some of that piece of history. God loves his people and watches over them and cares for them and and even leads his people through this cloud and through this fire. And so when we read what Isaiah says in chapter four, toward the end there, it says in verse five, so we've talked about on that day when you're made holy, on that day when you're made clean. And now we have this, then the Lord will create over the whole side of Mount Zion, over her assembly. So we've got people in place here, a cloud by day and, a, and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night for over all the glory. There's going to be a canopy. It's like a, a look back to the past of what God is going to do in the future. He says, there will be a booth. There will be a shelter for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. Because of the work of the branch, God's people are not just made holy and not just made clean, but this is telling us they are also made close to God. They're brought close to God. There is a a canopy. God is not distant. The picture is God is like over everybody. His presence is near. It sits over the whole city, sits over the whole assembly. 
and we wonder, like, Lord, what do you want me to do? And the picture is God gives, just like he led Israel with the cloud and like with the fire, God's going to lead and give guidance to his people. God is present and powerful. They don't have to fear. Maybe they could sing a song that is familiar to many of you. All the way my Savior leads me, what do I have to ask beside? Could I doubt his tender mercy? Who through life has been my guide? They can trust in him. They can follow him. They know that the Lord is close, not distant. He's guiding them. He's giving them direction. He's showing them what's next. He's giving them wisdom. Here's the path. Walk in it. God is close. Even more in verse 6, there's that picture of the Feast of Tabernacles. Like, what does it mean that he will give them a booth and he'll give them shade and protection and a, a shelter? It's like the feast that Israel would celebrate in the wilderness of like temporary dwelling places, but God was watching over them. God is still sheltering. You might know this already, but the reminder will be good today that God always wants to be close to redeem sinners. God does not want to be distant. So think the Garden of Eden. Think Adam and Eve. Think of the communion that God's people enjoyed with him. Think of the new heavens and the new earth in Revelation 21 and 22. What is that but God wanting to be with his people? And here it's restored. And it happens because of the branch. I don't know where you are with the Lord. I don't know if you walked in here going, actually things are pretty distant between me and God. Actually, there's been some separation. There's been some coldness. Actually, I don't feel that close to him. Actually, I'm not sure that he's here. God wants you to know he's present. God wants you to know of his refuge, his shelter over your life. The branch isn't identified in Isaiah 4. But the outline is given. The, the outline, you begin to see an identity of who it is that's being talked about as this branch. See, the branch doesn't seem like it's a, a branch in the forest. It seems more like a person. There are personal attributes that this branch who comes to make people holy and comes to make people clean and comes to make people close. And you begin to understand that the branch ha has an identity. As you read through the Bible, as you read through the rest of Isaiah, as you read through looks like Jeremiah and Zechariah, this word branch keeps coming up again and again. You see, the branch has a name. This branch is God's chosen instrument to change the world. Jeremiah will say that this branch is a branch from the family tree of David and that he is a king and he's a king of righteousness and that people will prosper because of his work. Zechariah says, this branch is a sign and a servant of God. He's going to build a place where people will commune with God. The picture book comes clear. The branch changes the world and forever changes God's people. He makes them holy, clean, brings them close. Who can do that? Who could do that for Israel? Who could do that for you? There's only one. The identity now becomes clear as Isaiah paints more and more colors and, and shades. Clear. This has to be talking about Jesus. He's the branch. He's the one who can make you holy. He's the one that can make me clean. He's the one that can bring us close to God. His first coming embodied the holiness of God. 
His first coming was to take away the sins of the world. His first coming was to bring us to God, God to us. He starts a work on our hearts that will be completed when we see him again. When you focus your attention on the one, when you focus your attention on the branch, the one who makes us holy, clean, and close, it puts us at a particular place. I think it puts us right at the Lord's table where we can have the Lord's Supper in just a few moments. I'll ask for our deacons to prepare us, but I, I want us to think for just a, a moment here about what it means to come to the Lord's table. Because as bread and juice comes, what's not happening is it's not like a, a little bit of good luck for your week when you take the bread and you take the juice. It's not some tradition that we just kind of dreamed up and we just want to pass on. Actually, what is happening is it takes these really common elements of a meal, what we eat and what we drink and being together. And we get a taste. We get a taste. Already, God has done something. We get a taste of what God has done. We get, we get a taste of what it means. Like, we've been declared holy. We've been made clean. We've been brought close to God. Already, we're enjoying that. And yet, there's a day when it'll be fully realized. Today, it's just partial. For that reason, here's what I want us to do. I, I would like to invite everybody, everybody who has trusted in Jesus Christ and publicly professed your faith in him as your Lord, as your Savior, as your everything. I want you to take the bread and take the juice and in a moment we will eat and drink together, reminding ourselves he's the one that has made us holy. He's the one that has made us clean. He's the one that has brought us close. I want even in the time where we sing and hear music for us to like settle our hearts and remind ourselves of the assurance we have in Jesus. And if you're not yet a, a follower of Jesus, or maybe you haven't gone public with that, maybe you're just not there yet. Could I ask you to do something? Could I ask you, maybe you're not ready to make a commitment to follow Jesus today, but could you just, when the plate is passed, just take the tray and pass it on? but I'd encourage you to do one more thing. Would a conversation help you in any way? After the service, or, or maybe even this week, would a conversation help you to say, I want to be holy. I want to be clean. I want to be close to God. I want that desperately. Could we have a conversation about that? About what that would mean for your life? What hope, what promise is being made to you? In the meantime, church, I want us to enter into this special time of communion, remembering that God is present with us. He's here.